Hello, welcome to the High Reliability Podcast presented by Goslin Martin Associates. I am your host, Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. The High Reliability Podcast is focused solely on the healthcare facility management professional, and it is sponsored by the Career Hub. The Career Hub is powered by Goslin Martin Associates, so if you haven't checked it out yet, please do so. You can link to the Career Hub off of our main website at goslin-associates.com. I wanted to um, first thank you all for listening. Just um, I really appreciate it. We have surprisingly thousands and thousands of downloads of this, and I'm really happy about that because when we started last April, I thought it would probably just be me and my wife who would download it, and my wife wouldn't listen. But anyways, I appreciate it, and I thank you for listening. And as always, if you want to download, go to Apple, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Two words I thought would never come out of my mouth related to anything that I would do. But again, I do appreciate you all, and thank you for listening and providing comments to me as well. Today, uh, we welcome Dave Dejeuner to High Reliability. Dave is probably familiar to many of you. If you haven't seen him, I'm sure you've heard his name. Dave served as president of ASHI in 2015. When I was writing the intro for this, um, I was guessing, and Dave, I don't, you probably feel the same way, I was guessing it was maybe 2018, 2017. When I look back to see it was 2015, it just uh, it makes you realize how quickly time flies by. Six years, hard to believe. Dave is currently Senior Director of Plan Operations, <clears throat> excuse me, Clinical Engineering, Emergency Management, and Safety Officer at Wentworth Douglas Hospital up in Dover, New Hampshire. Dave's just north of me by a, mit, by a bit. It's a beautiful day out here, finally. Dave is also former life safety surveyor for the Joint Commission. He sits on many NFPA code-making committees, and he serves on NFPA's Codes and Standards Review Committee for Healthcare. He's also a faculty member for NFPA and ASHI. Prior to serving nationally for ASHI, Dave served in various capacities for the New England Healthcare Engineer Society, better known as NEHES. What you may not know, uh, prior to entering healthcare as a master electrician at Wentworth Douglas, where he is now senior director, Dave served in the U.S. Army as a company construction sergeant for six years. He was also a police officer in New Hampshire uh, upon returning from the Army. Dave's got his Bachelor of Science in Business. He also has his CHFM, his CHSP. Dave is also a certified healthcare safety officer. Dave, welcome to the show and thank you. Well, great. It's great to be here, Peter. You know, after you give that introduction, it feels like maybe I need to get another job or something and try to figure out try to figure out where I'm going to go from here. Uh, but I appreciate I appreciate I appreciate the kind words. That was that was very nice. And uh, you know, it's it's really what we all do in the industry to find find ways to keep our days busy. So, thank you for having yes. me. My pleasure. I had, uh, I was joking with Dave a couple of weeks ago. I don't know. This is probably our 24th or 25th, and. Um, when I called him and said, "Hey, Dave, you want to do the podcast?" I was, uh, I said to him, "I can't believe I hadn't thought of you earlier." I mean, um, you know, he's close. We see Dave often, and Dave is, uh, you know, with that career, Dave's done a lot of different things and a lot of different perspectives. And so I, I apologize to him. Uh, Jack and I were had mentioned Dave's name a couple of weeks ago, and that's when the light went off. And I was like, you know what? I got to call Dave. I got to get him on the high reliability podcast. I don't know that you need another job. You, you've had a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you said that, I said, well, wait, wait a minute. You, you've been doing this for a while and you haven't called me. Or is that... <laughs> it was like, you know, Mia culpa. I, th- I thought we were friends. Yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Mia culpa, Mia culpa. Yeah, so let's yeah. actually start with that, Dave. I mean, you've had an interesting career. You know, you've taken a traditional and an untraditional career route. You've been an army sergeant. You've been a police officer. You've been a tradesman. You went from manager to director to senior director. You're a teacher, a life safety surveyor, an ASHI president, an advocate for the profession relative to NFPA. Anybody who's seen you at ASHI and different things, you know, up there speaking passionately. You've done a lot. How do you describe your career? And did you plan it this way? Did you ever envision it? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I planned it precisely down to each element. <laughs> Absolutely I'm, not true. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, so so uh, and, and you know, you it it seems like it's really all over the page. It seems like it's not, but you know, I, I I'll share with you uh, how I got to where I was. But you know, before I go there, I would certainly say that you know, and you know, we've talked about this in the healthcare industry for for years now. I don't think anyone goes through high school and goes into college and says, you know. 
I'm going to be a healthcare facilities manager, or I'm going to get involved in the healthcare facilities field. And, you know, uh, Peter, we've been, we've been trying to change that mindset for decades now so that, so that uh, young, young students who come up in the field are actually saying that. But that's not really how I got there. I mean, I can tell you that uh, up, up here in the beautiful state of New Hampshire, um, I, I started working. My, my working career began uh, at the age of 16 uh, when I found out I could actually get a job and, and, and then do school on the side, in my mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so uh, we, School on the so, side. I like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... So I got, I got my first job for a local electrician and I became his apprentice. Uh, at that time, at the age of 16, apprentice means truck cleaner, shop cleaner. <laughs> but the reality is, is that's, that's where it began. And, you know, quite honestly, from that moment, I, I can't think of a time in my career. And, you know, many of my colleagues are the same where I actually only had one job, meaning I've always had multiple jobs, if not three maybe, maybe, maybe four in some occasions. So, so the short answer is, is so I started as a, as an apprentice electrician in the state of New Hampshire, uh, and finished school. I, I will share with you this kind of a little interesting thing is my passion for debate, which will really lie in, uh, tie into this whole, um, code, code making thing became obvious at a very young age. And what I mean by that is, is that as a high school student, I, um, I had achieved all the credits that were necessary to graduate in the state of New Hampshire as a junior. So wow. after my junior year, you know, and I'm not saying uh, these were not like high level college college mm-hmm. classes. These were, you know, basket weaving one on one type classes, you know, as, as a high school student, we're saying, OK, how do I how do I get by and still still have my job? You yep. know what I mean? So. Yep. So I took I took classes that that, quite frankly, I had completed all my credits. So. So what I did as a junior is I appealed to the school board, and I know this is kind of it's kind of a funny story, so I like to share it. I appealed to the school board, so I, I I basically debated with the school board, saying, "Okay, if if I've if I've achieved all my credits for graduation, why do I need to come back my senior year?" Wow! And they were just fl- they were just absolutely <laughs> surprised by that request. They said, "Well, what do you mean? You don't want to come back your senior year?" I said, "Actually, I don't. What I want what I've done." is I've signed up uh, to go into the army and, and I'm asking uh, to, to, to not come back my senior year. And, and, you know, as, as odd as it may sound, they were like, well, wait a minute, you, you can't do that. And I said, okay, why, why can't I do that? I have the credits required. There's nothing saying that I, that I need to attend four years of high school. The expectation is that as I achieve the appropriate amount of credits in the appropriate categories, I've done that. So quite frankly, in my mind, my fourth year, i.e. senior year, is a waste of time. Wow. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, it was a huge debate to the point where I've got to share this with you. I have ruined it for virtually everyone else in the state of New Hampshire. So so what what I what I mean by that is is that after they finally approved that, you know, and I had the support of my parents, I they say, "Look, you, you make a valid case." So I had the support of my parents and 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 they said, "Fine, you do not need to come back um, wow. and, and finish your senior year." So I tell that story because that that really uh began my my interest in the advocacy world, meaning, you know, many of us, many of us could sit back and just say, we're just going to take it the way things fall and just deal with it. But if you think about it, if the rules or expectations say this, you have to have X amount of credits, then why spend the uh, remainder of uh, an entire year achieving additional credits that are going to have no long-term value? That was my take on the time. Yeah. So in doing that, in doing that, I then went into the army. Now, when I went into the army, I went in as an electrician because it made sense. Yeah. You know, I was working as a part-time electrician or, or an apprentice electrician. Um, so I went into the army initially as an electrician. Um, not a lot of debate takes place in the army. Just for the reference, uh, you can, you can, you can, uh, you can have uh, some short discussions with your senior <laughs> leaders, but it's a very, very limited uh, opportunity for debate. So my debate interest over a period of time diminished. What I will share with you, though, is that you know, you know, technically I have six years in the army, but if back in those days, we're talking, you know, eighty in the eighties, there wasn't any wars. 
Now, that's a nice thing to say. There wasn't any wars at the time. But because there wasn't any wars, the political environment was really focused around uh, downsizing the military of the United States. So what happened is, is I got, they came to me with an opportunity and they were trying to get many of the uh, service members to actually uh, convert over to the reserves. So you're still the same army status, but what that did is it puts you on a, on, on a uh, more of a part-time basis is the term I'll use, you know, towards mm-hmm. the end of my time in the army, they, they asked and I said, well, if I convert over to the reserves, that means I can get another job. You know what I mean? So, 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 so it really tied into my, my, my theory of rounding of, you know, having more jobs, like more than one job throughout a good portion of my career. So towards the end of that, I converted over to the reserve uh, as part of the uh, downsizing military program. And then I went back to working for the electrician. So now I'm, I'm working, I'm working for an electrician as an apprentice still. And I also have a part-time job, I'll call it in the army. So again, two jobs. So then what happened, then what happened, which I thought was kind of interesting, is that the opportunity came up uh, where I could, I I had put my apprentice time in and I was able to qualify to become a journeyman electrician. Um, So I I studied, I took the test and um, lo and behold, I became the state of New Hampshire's youngest journeyman um, uh, uh, at that time. And the rules of sense, uh, at the time I was roughly about 19. Yeah. Jeez. So, and, and, and I'll also share with you, uh, Peter, that the requirements for journeyman training at that time was much less. You didn't have to have X amount of hours. You know what I mean? So it was, it was, um, the apprentice program since then has revamped significantly, which means that I'm pretty, pretty much convinced that nobody will ever break that record as a, as the youngest because they've changed the rules and you can't. So again, here's an example of a, they changed the rules after my high school experience. Cause I, cause I challenged it. Yeah. They changed the rules after my journeyman's uh, experience because I challenged it. So there seems to be a trend of me destroying good opportunities for everybody else. (laughs) On a little bit of competition too, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, so, so then, you know, I progressed in the electrical field with a local contractor. And at that time, sure, of course, before you, um, and and go back to that, because I do want to hear that progression going back to um, leaving high school. I wouldn't assume you have any regrets because, you know, that that move, you know, your, your career has kind of taken off in that projection where it's worked for you. But are there any regrets? Not that you did it, but is there anything looking back in retrospect that you regret you either didn't do or, you know, didn't happen for that one year? Yeah. So I would say the only thing I would regret. So I, I didn't I didn't find any value in high school. That's hmm. just me. I did not yeah. enjoy it. Uh, yep. my, my, what, what I did, what I did was, is I was, I was, a, I was an avid cross country runner yep. and, you know, in, as, as my junior year, I, I, I had already captured the, um, the, uh, the high school record for that, for that sport at that time. So I, I had accomplished that. So there's the short answer is, is I think what I missed is where I could have gone, uh, from a, from a, um, athletic ability where, what, mm-hmm. what could have happened if I'd have stayed there as a senior and continued to compete in mm-hmm. cross country running, you know, I'd already gone to the States. I'd already gone to the regionals. I'd already done all that. And, you know, it's kind of funny that it, it, I, I like to share with people. There was a local runner who, um, uh, who I competed quite regularly against, um, and that individual runner ended up going to the Olympics. Now I have to share with you, I compete, I competed against this runner and she was a female. So I was competing against a female who went to the Olympics. But anyways, awesome. that, 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 that was, that was, so I say to myself, well, if, if I'd, if I'd, cause you wouldn't qualify for any of that, Peter, if you didn't go through your senior year. So ah, that's okay. the only thing I, that's the only thing I would regret is that that's I, good. I, that's I, good. I, I, I kind of yeah. missed that. Yep. Yep. So you so you get on that master electrician track. You're you're working, uh, you know, you're working, and then I I interrupted you for a sec. Yeah. So I so from that point, um, I I I, I ended up thinking that okay, well maybe the police would be my career path. Mm-hmm. So so I I uh, in New Hampshire, like many uh, rural communities, there's very small towns. It was it was a local town that was very small, and they indicated that they were looking for. 
uh, a police officers. So I said, well, I'll give it a try. I'll go in and talk. And, 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 and when I went for the first time, uh, I didn't get the job offering. What I got was the job offering from what's called the animal control officer. So I'm saying to myself, okay, well, I have this passion to be a police officer. I'm thinking I might, but I can't, I can't do it. But then I said to myself, well, you know, what's wrong with animal control? It gets your foot in the door and it's, a, yeah. it's another job. It's another job. So that means I'll have, I'll now have this. So at that point I had uh, electrician full-time, army part-time and animal control officer on a side. So I'm saying to myself, okay, let's give it a try. So we tried it. It materialized into about a year later. There was a position open, and because I had got go. the foot in the door, and you know, you know, based on your career, how important it is to get your foot in the door. Right. I mean, the reality is, is you want to, you want to, you want to make a name for yourself. Yep. I was a little concerned that I was making my name for myself, picking up stray dogs. But <laughs> the reality is, is that it's a task that needed to be done. Uh, and, and it gave me an opportunity. And then, um, so I became a, uh, a part-time police officer initially. So then I became very obvious that I had to make some type of a decision because I, I, I I can't have too many full-time jobs. (laughs) So I took a little bit of, so I took a little bit of time away and, uh, worked for, as a police officer full-time, uh, so that I could get, uh, get the background behind me for about a year and a half, two years. And then ended up once I done that, go back, I went back to full-time electrician. So, so between it all, I was a police officer part-time. So my police officer career was about, uh, about 10, 12 years, uh, in a capacity of part-time and full-time in a real small community that I was born and raised in. So it was, it was very enjoyable. Yeah. Wow. Let me ask you, just going back to your uh, animal control, what was the, what was the most, what was the scariest or strangest animal that you had to pick up in your animal control career? Uh, so I didn't pick it up. I shoot it away and it was a cow. Um, so it's not easy to pick up a cow, but you know, and it's kind of, this is kind of embarrassing, quite honestly, is, is if you think about it, what are you going to do though? It's a cow. If you think about it, if you think about it, the animal control officer really backs up all the, all the police officers, law enforcement officers who don't want to deal with things, Mm -hmm. you know? So, uh, the most common was dogs, obviously stray dogs, but the cow thing was kind of unique. There's a cow in the middle of the road and he'd made his, I say he, I really didn't verify whether it was a he or she, <laughs> quite honestly, uh, it, it made my mind up that didn't want to move. So that, that's kind of like a joke that I always tell the family. I, I shoot cows, which is probably <laughs> a perfect career if you're in that field, but I really wanted to be a police officer. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So, uh, you were, you were going, I just, I, I kind of popped in again, no, um, no problem. talking about, talking about that progression. Um, so you, you're, you're yeah, moving so on. Yeah. Yeah. Go right ahead. So I, so, so I ended up going, uh, back to full-time as an electrician, part-time as a police officer. So because I didn't have enough going on, uh, myself and a couple other police officers opened a side gig, side business, uh, called the paddy wagon appropriate name for police yeah. officers and what this was is what this was is it was like a, a a takeout trailer type thing where we'd set it up in a parking lot and serve hamburgers hot dogs and those things on the side i have no idea why we decided to do this i, I thought you were driving to bars picking people up i thought you were like yeah. an early uh an early uber <laughs> you know, oh no, that would have been an idea. No, so, th- so this was the food service industry that was, you know, we it was really a thing. And, and we say to myself, well, why did we do that? But, but I tell you this story because the one of the police officers that uh, was part of that uh, left his police career and came to work at the current hospital that I work at right now. And when he came to work here, it was shortly thereafter. He said, "Hey, look, Dave, look, there's an opening here for an electrician. I think it's a great opportunity." So that's actually. I didn't seek the job that the electrician's job at the at the at the hospital that I work at, but I'll share with you. I was getting relatively tired of doing electrical work in the in the in the field. Uh, I, I was getting uh, bored with crawling around in attics on the residential mm. side and those things. So I was looking for a more clean, more uh, high tech uh, path, and the hospital seemed to make sense. So. So when I when he when he said the job existed and, and basically said, Dave, I, I'm telling you, you're going to be a shoe in. They're going to love you when they talk to you. So he he actually convinced me to apply. 
I applied and became very intrigued with the codes and requirements, not only on the electrical side, but within healthcare as a whole. And what I refer to is, is that, you know, the, the joint commission requirements, all the, all the requirements that we all have to deal with on a, on a general basis. So that was my path to the hospital, which means I left my full-time electrician's job for a local contractor, came to the hospital full-time, still had my part-time police officer work on the side, still had my part-time paddy wagon food service work on the side. Um, and, and that became, and at that point I was just getting out of the, uh, the army reserve element. So that, that was going off to the wayside. So I still, at that point was down to, you know, three, three general items. It became very, very clear. The minute I entered the hospital, uh, from, a, uh, that there were a lot of code requirements and a lot of requirements that I knew nothing about in the general industry world. So that that was an eye opener for me. What I what I found is that I was working with a local inspector on the electrical side who I said something, just comments as well. That requirement doesn't make any sense, and he joked and he said, "Well, him. that's the." Re- yeah, I said that to him. Yeah, he was enforcing something upon me that I said that doesn't make any sense, and he said, "Well, you may not think it makes any sense, but um, if you don't like it, it's nobody's fault but your own." And I said to him, "I said." I said, what do you mean by that? His name, name was Jim Maxfield. And he, he said, I said, what do you mean by that? He says, well, codes are made by the people. And if you don't like it, put a code change in. Yeah. And I'm going to be very honest with you. That is the first time I had ever even thought that you could you could affect code, that you could change code, that you could do it. So I got to be honest with you. I that's the When he said that, I said, well... Sounds like graduating from high school as a junior. So I jumped in. I put a code proposed change in, and it had to do with uh, being able to fish wires down a wall. wasn't any wasn't a big dramatic change, but it, it was a change that I thought was stupid. The technical committee accepted it, yeah. put the code change in, and lo and behold, the code changed because I made a suggestion. Wow! And I'm going to tell you that what that was the that was the pivotal change in my career that if 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 somebody who just entered entered the healthcare field didn't think something was good could put a change in and the committee would accept it it works this is a system i want to be part of so a couple that's where my code development began yeah were you um would you say that guy the the inspector jim maxfield wasn't it's interesting i mean i you know when you told that story and i'm sure many people who are listening can connect to it i've seen you talk at ashy and at nihis just in especially what was a couple years ago when you were in your advocacy with the nfpa and making change you've taken that speech and you get i mean i've heard you say that to people and so it's you know that you know as you look back at your career how impactful that gentleman was because that's a message that you've taken and i've heard you challenge your peers if you don't like it do something about it correct and you, you consistently deliver that message you know the interesting thing about that that gentleman is he's he's still in the inspector field, but he was my apprentice when I was in the electrical wow. field. Wow. But you know he was right; he was absolutely right. He just went a different path before I did. You know, so he 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 was an individual that changed, and there was another individual that clearly changed it. And I've used his term in the past. His name uh, he's no longer with us is Rick Bowen. Uh, he was the he was the director here at the hospital that I am when I came to work here. And that story really made the difference that, so now I've learned, okay, you can make code changes. He really forced me to uh, put my money where my mouth was, for lack of a better term, in that back when he was the director, as the electrician, he would come to me uh, virtually every year and say, Dave, you kind of like this code stuff. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of it. <laughs> this is what I need you to do. I need you to look at the new code that is coming out. And I need you to let me know how much more money I need to put in the budget for next year to cover the code changes. And I did that. I did that for a few code cycles. And then I started saying, okay, this this, this doesn't make sense. Because I would see the budget go up every year. I'd see us justifying the budget go up every year. So I finally I finally said, well, why why are we just reacting to the code changes? As opposed to trying to 
uh, have an impact on him. Mm-hmm. So I, I put a package together, Peter. I went to him. I said, look, Rick, I, I appreciate your support, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want you to think about this a little differently. What if rather than we just put a budget together that increases every year, what if we work together, convince our executive suite that we don't want to do that any longer? We want to spend some money to get involved in the advocacy effort, and that money would be short dollars in compared to the savings that we may have over over time. And we would commit that if we do that, we will not be raising our budget on an every year basis. We'd be actually potentially uh, holding it still or reducing it. And he said, that's kind of a bold statement. You're saying we're going to go into this saying, if we do it, we're going to change the paradigm of just reaching up, raising the budget every year because of codes. We're not going to say that anymore. I said, what we're going to say is that we're going to invest some money into the advocacy efforts and we're going to try and control spending. And, you know, I'll be very honest with you, that was at the time where healthcare was in this control spending mode. As you know, healthcare for decades was just raise, raise money, raise money, raise, keep raising the budget. Yeah. And then we, we, behind all the general industry, had to, had to find a way to start saving money. So he bought into it. He said, do what you need to do. He, 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 he convinced me to get involved in organizations like Nehe's. He convinced me to get involved in organizations like Ashy, And he convinced me to, to get involved in the code development process that would be on the NFPA as well as the FGI world. Hmm. And that, that was it. Once, wow. once I did that, I was there. And that, that, was the, that was the significant change in my career path was was uh, Rick Boeing having confidence in the pitch that I gave him that we could be successful. And I would suggest we have been, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You know, you mentioned it. I just, you know, the very first question, like, did you plan your career this way? No, you, you don't. But yet when no. you look back, you can see how every building Links block connect. Yeah, you, exactly. Right? And, exactly. And as you're talking, you know, you, um, you know, you communicate well. You're a confident speaker. I didn't know that about your debate, but you can see where the debate comes from, you know, from when you're 16 years old. But yet, so you've got those soft skills. You got those covered, right? But when you went in front of, you know, I'm imagining you're somewhat new to healthcare. You're somewhat new to healthcare in the electrical capacity. You're going in front of the NFPA. You're, you're, you're advocating for a change. What did you... How did where did your confidence come from technically, and what were you feeling? And did you ever kind of doubt, or were you ever awed that holy cow, I'm 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 trying to speak in front of these people. I'm somewhat new to healthcare. How do I convince them? Like, what was your thought process on that? Were you were you afraid? Were you confident? What were you thinking? Well, I was. I would say I was uh, uh, misunderstood or confused. I guess so. When I put that first code proposal, I talked talked. Uh, I mentioned it went through. Like like that, I say, man, how easy is this? You know, <laughs> if it's this easy, it, let's just let's just change the National Electrical Code to the right. Dave Code. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm saying to myself, okay, this is this is this is a this is a walk in the park. Uh, unfortunately, it's not that. And the reality is, is that um, when I began the process, it became very very obvious. You win some. And you lose mm. some. Mm. And at the end of the day, you've got to not look at it as winning and losing. So my confidence was in that, well, I did it once. Mm-hmm. And I learned very quickly that the best way to have an impact is to get more involved. So the example that I used was just, I put a proposal in and the committee accepted it. Okay. Well, how do I have influence over that committee going forward rather than just my debate? The obvious answer was hmm. become part of the committee. Yeah. Because if you become part of the committee, you have multiple forums where you can make your case. And the committee, quite honestly, is the first process, Peter, that raises their hand and say, yeah, we like it. So if you're on that, you can influence the committee members directly. And then if that doesn't work, you then can speak in front of the entire body. So I took that philosophy and I took that confidence I got from that first code change that I ever did. And I I said, well, if you can do it there, you can do it anywhere. And I think for the most part, many of the code advocacy changes that I do are are directly in line with my relationship with ASHI. 
Because, you know, as I as I progressed through the national level from uh, New Hampshire president to Nihis president up to Ashi president, I began to align myself with the industry. And as I aligned myself with the industry, it became very obvious that there were many like-minded individuals who were saying that same thing about that's a stupid code. Why do we even do that? Uh, and then, and then I began saying to people, and you know, for some reason, when I say it, I don't think it comes across as as nicely as as the inspector who said it to me. <laughs> Look, if you don't like that code, it's nobody's fault but your own. Uh, and you know, and I live and breathe by that. If you don't like the code, don't complain about it. Put a proposal in and advocate to change it. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it works. That's what makes that's what makes the whole code process worthwhile. And 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 uh, you know, we've talked about. Um, Controlling your destiny, you know, we can talk about that a little later if we have time, but that's really what it's all about. It's don't just sit back and take what's handed to you. It's manage it. Yeah. Well, I was going to, you know, it's, I was actually going to say that because you and I had talked about that previously that, you know, Dave gives a um, a seminar called Control Your Destiny. I've seen you do it at the Ashy Annual. I've seen you at Nihis, um provide it. It's a great session. And, you know, as I listen to you talk, you kind of, you live that you live controlling your destiny. What is control your destiny and how does an FM professional, especially these days where there's so much uncertainty, how do they control their destiny? What, what advice would you, you provide an FM person trying to control their destiny? Yeah. So uh, again, another level of passion for me, I, I think the answer is very simple. We have to look at what our role is and how we fit into the healthcare community a little different than we did in the past. You know, and I hate using this term, but everyone knows it. You know, it's it's like from, you know, the boiler room, boiler room to the yeah. boardroom. You know what right. I mean? Everybody I, I gets that's, it. So it's, I, it's a visual. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it, it's killed. It, it's killed. Uh, and it's overused. But really, if you think about what that's talking about, it's talking about that facility manager who used to be the, I'm going to use the term, best widget maker. Mm-hmm. So that was the person who knew absolutely everything about the facility or everything about the mechanical side. We've learned very, very recently, in my opinion, in, in the big scheme of the healthcare industry, that that is not enough any longer. Mm. organizations in the healthcare industry is really looking for the facility managers of the current day to be, uh, I'm going to say, have a business background. We are running small businesses within a major corporation. We are a department in a major corporation who is responsible for outcomes, responsible for financial success, and responsible for all of the other things associated with that. So being the best boiler operator for 20 years and then being promoted into a, a, a manager's role is no longer enough. So, so, so my point I'm getting to is that if we are to control our destiny, we are to manage costs, and we are to understand the code's requirements that exist, the best way to do that is to be involved in the code development process because you know when the codes are coming, you have input and you can you can impact it. I always share the story uh, in that control your destiny uh, uh, discussion about okay, let's just let's just look at it from this perspective. If the state was going to pass a new tax on uh, on a hospital, I guarantee you that every hospital in that state, the CFO would be at that meeting and they would be advocating, no, no, you can't pass a new tax because this is what it's going to do to us. It is virtually no different in our industry. If the codes are going to pass new requirements, they're going to cost facilities more money, then it is our job. It's an expectation. And if it isn't, make it that you're at the table and you're advocating, don't do this. A, it doesn't provide an additional level of safety. B, it's not necessary in the healthcare world, and C, it's going to impact the cost of healthcare. <clears throat> so it's really taking that mindset of I'm not just the best widget maker anymore. I'm a business person, and in my role as a business person, uh, yeah, I have to have a competency and skill set around building systems, but really I'm running a financial business, and it needs to be successful. And part of that is reducing costs. So I said reducing cost. That's very different than cutting. So for decades, we always got we always got beat up. You know, when when, a, when an organization is in financial stress, 
what do they do? They go after the non-clinical departments. This is my opinion, in my opinion only. They go after the non-clinical departments and they say, I need you to cut, cut by X percent. Yep. I'm saying, no, let's do it differently. Let's choose our destiny. Our destiny is I don't want to cut staff. What I want to do is use tactical ways to reduce costs in a different way. I don't want less people. I want less costs. And the way I can get less costs is to get involved in code development and reduce those costs. So it's really about choosing your destiny. You can you can just take what's handed to you or you can craft what you want. Does that make Excellent. sense? How, it does. It does. How is that? <clears throat> excuse me. Sorry. How is that message received today? Um, like a year into COVID, your message, and I agree with you. 100% reducing costs versus cutting costs because you can only cut so much. How is that message received today from the people at the C-level that you're interacting with? Has it still been effective or are they saying, we got to cut Dave? No, now, we luckily, cut Dave. We yeah, have to cut yeah, no, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's possible as well, I guess. But luckily, luckily, I have a couple jobs I could go to if I had to. <laughs> that's great, uh, so, great succession planning. You've done your own succession yeah, planning in multiple, exactly. uh, multiple paths. Um, I, I, I think, I think uh, what we're experiencing right now might be a little premature. And what I mean by mm-hmm. that is, I think uh, in the world of uh, financial means for healthcare. It's, it's, and, and this is my opinion only again. I know I, I always kind of put the disclaimer out there. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Hmm. Uh, and, and the reason why I say that is, is that I think uh, right now, many of us are still dealing with how we have to manage through this COVID. COVID's not over. The financial burden from COVID is not over. Yeah. Uh, we've been given, we've been given, uh, I'm not going to use the word a free pass, but we've been given some latitude about, well, you know, what are you going to do? You got to, you got to manage this pandemic. A year and a half, two years from now, the pandemic's going to be gone and we're going to have all these lost dollars that, uh, that are not going to be able to be recouped. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not trying to minimize this pandemic by any means, but there's there's virtually no money in COVID. Right, um, yeah. What 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 happens is what happens is is that we've all lost a tremendous amount of revenue based on not doing surgeries, not doing a variety of things. Yeah, I think many major corporations uh, have gone into their piggy bank and they they they've they've uh, you know ride the storm out. Eventually, that we're going to be past riding the storm out. And there's going to be an expectation at a higher level that th- that the the financial expectation returns back to normal and maybe uh-huh. even increases. You know what I mean? Yep. I think many of us are not there yet, Peter. But it, yeah, it's I agree with you. I agree. With you. So, so so what that means is that it's going to be, in my opinion, even more important that we it, we find innovative ways to have cost avoidance or reduce cost, not by reducing people. Because I will tell you that the biggest, the most important resource, and this may sound kind of corny, in a healthcare organization is its people. I don't. That's that's just the way it is, and and to reduce that uh, is not the right approach. Let's find other ways to to get in the financial state we need to be. And I use the term cost avoidance. Let's avoid mm-hmm. costs that we don't need. Yep. No, absolutely. You've talked a lot about your advocacy relative to the NFPA. Is there any, um, what are you working on from an advocacy perspective or or is there any, what's your challenge now as it relates to NFPA code? Is there a current one? Yeah. So what's interesting is, is for those of you that don't know, every code, at least on the NFPA world, gets redeveloped or re uh, gets republished or re worked every three years. So I've created, I've created a model where I have job security. What I mean by that is, is that every three years they develop a new code and every three years there's all kinds of new proposals and, and it's, it's another bite of the apple. So this doesn't go away. Um, so, so many people that I talk to in the, in, about the code development initiative, they're like, well, why do you bother Dave? Because you, we know in the healthcare world, uh, the, uh, see, uh, um, the Joint Commission and uh, CMS, you know, they're so far behind. We're currently on, you know, the 2012 edition. Yeah. Uh, why are you wasting your time? And, and, and my answer is very simple. If you recall, you've been in the industry. We went from the 2000 edition to the 2012 edition. That's 12 years. Right. That's going to happen again. 
And when that happens again, we got to make sure that whatever code they grab and use is good. So, so I, I'm saying it's like we're doing a lot of work up front. We don't know what current code they're going to pick when they pick it. Irrelevant of that, we got to make sure they're all good and they work for healthcare. So everything we do today is like is like a money in the bank, in my opinion, because what's going to happen is, is they're going to pick a code, and when they pick that code, I'm going to lay my head on the pillow at night and say that code's good. It's okay because mm-hmm. we worked all this time to get it where it needs to be. So, so the short answer is, is that uh, every three years I get a fresh start in my activities and, and we all get a fresh start and it changes. So the, so the big issue I tell you, I I shared with you at the beginning, I'm I'm on the FGI guidelines as well. There's a lot of talk around, uh, and I'm going to use the term, uh, knee jerk reaction here. You know, Mm -hmm. COVID has changed our world. Um, it, it was a pandemic that, at least in my career, I never thought I was going to have a command center. You know, so I, we mentioned I'm in charge of emergency management here at the hospital. I never thought I'd ever have a command center that would last over a year, <laughs> and it has. So uh, we got we to gotta look at that and just make sure we're not making code changes that are not based on science. Yeah. This was a pandemic once in a lifetime. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to change, take the code books, rip them up, and write a new code book. And that stands true for the FGI guidelines as well. There's a lot of suggestions and proposals about all kinds of new requirements that may be put in place in direct response to the pandemic. So I think our work is, our path of work around that area is 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 going to grow over over the next year or so. How do you, you know, it's, it's interesting you talk about the knee-jerk reactions because we see them daily. I mean, I think through social media, everything's knee-jerk these days, and that's not a political statement or social. It just is. So from, you know, relative to knee-jerk reactions in healthcare, how do you or, you know, it's how do you go about trying to avoid those knee-jerk reactions? And how do you try to influence others so that your destiny is controlled by the science as opposed to the emotion. Yeah. Reality check. You know, you got to put it, you got to put it in check and you got to, you got to debate and hold people accountable and respectful to their thinking process. Uh, you know, so I'll use the pandemic as an example. Many of us were running around uh, virtually chickens with our head cut off, putting up plexiglass, putting up mm-hmm. uh, additional negative pressure machines, doing everything we thought that was best at the time. We now have learned, okay, uh, there may have been other ways to do it. It may not have been necessary. And, you know, you mentioned it. I don't want to get it political, but let's not kid ourselves. This, this pandemic had a level of uh, political element to it that we were all trying to manage and navigate through. Yep. But the bottom line is, is now in hindsight, we can look at what we perceived work, looked at what we didn't, what didn't work or was not necessary, and use that as part of your debate. Say, let's not make knee-jerk reactions. Let's make the, make the decision in the moment that we think is best for the safety of our patients and staff and visitors, and let's learn from it. And and, and guys, we're not always going to be right. There is some stuff that we did that wasn't necessary or wasn't right, and let's not let's not do those things. So 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 the only way you can really, in my opinion, eliminate the knee-jerk reaction is to use the the, the past or the history to make your case. Um, and that's that's the that's really the whole concept around any type of advocacy efforts or any type of debate. You've got to make your case. You've got to convince the jury, for lack of a better term, um, that what you're saying makes sense. And if you do that on a regular basis, you get followers. And if you get followers, you become a leader. And if you mm-hmm. become a leader, you then can influence it much easier and at a greater scale. Great little chronology there. You know, you're right. If you look back at this whole, um, you know, pandemic, you could really, even historically, so we're a year into it, a little bit more now, um, but you can almost take that March 13th to say June 15th or whatever that date is into the spring. We're just, re- you were just doing what you needed to do to survive, right? I mean, everybody was doing that across all industries. It wasn't unique to healthcare, just more of a focus on healthcare because and that's where the importance is. But you can, you can, you can silo that entire period of time and almost get a get out of jail free card. And that's kind of a negative, And I don't mean it that way because you were just responding to what you had to respond to. By the minute, Peter, by the yeah. minute, it changed by the minute. 
it was airborne. It wasn't airborne. It was dropped that it wasn't dropped. It was, right. it was, it was insane. Uh, it was a, it was a, uh, this may sound odd. It was a great time to be in healthcare. If you thrive on challenges and a level of stress, uh, there's certainly enough, enough work for anyone. You know what I mean? So it was a great time to be in healthcare. How many jobs did you have during this? <laughs> uh, so it's interesting you should say that. You know, so you you noted that I'm a former uh, a former uh, Joint Commission surveyor. Uh, I will tell you, over the last year, I resigned my position as a Joint Commission surveyor, and it wasn't solely because of the pandemic. But what 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 it really stems from is that. Uh, my passion for advocacy, my passion for training, and my passion for education uh, doesn't necessarily always go in direct alignment with uh, the survey and or accrediting process. And what I mean by that is, is that uh, in the Joint Commission world, quite honestly, they are they just enforce the CMS requirements. I mean, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. want to minimize their role, but that's what they do. Right. Yep. So if you're if you're an individual that necessarily doesn't agree with all of the CMS requirements, and you want to be across the table advocating against those CMS requirements, it becomes a little awkward in some situations if you're the one enforcing those CMS requirements. Yeah. So I'm sitting there, I'm sitting around and I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying on one day, CMS, okay, this requirement makes no sense. It has no value. It's outdated. It doesn't need to be there. And then two days later, I'm going to one of my colleagues' hospitals, and I'm enforcing that requirement that I was saying two days ago didn't make any sense. Um, yeah. So yeah. you know, it, you you you, we all get judged on what we do personally and individually in our own minds. And I, I was, you know, I'm sitting around saying, where, where do I want to be? Do I want to continue to advocate? And you know, when I found myself. Uh, having to, yeah, I'm going to say it, bite my tongue in some situations and not speak out in scenarios that uh, so that I could be respectful of the of the what I did. So I decided uh, the opportunity uh, a the COVID there wasn't a lot of work. You know, I like multiple jobs. There wasn't a lot going on. I decided that uh, the time that I'd spent with the Joint Commission was amazing. I learned a lot. I had great experiences. I like to think I, I educated people as I went out and did the surveys. But the reality is, is that ability to educate uh, was becoming less and less available to me. And the ability to force uh, compliance was becoming more obvious based on the CMS requirements. And I don't mean that in a bad way for the Joint Commission. They've got right. to do the job that they're that they're hired to do. You know what I mean? But, yeah. you know, we've seen over the last several years, uh, the, the see it cited mentality that we've heard about. You know, when I first started surveying for the Joint Commission, there was a tremendous amount of latitude for the surveyors to, I'll say, educate the organization and not cite it. That that has changed over time. And I just felt like it was the time for me to exit that portion of my career. I still love the Joint Commission. I still am in contact with many folks at the Joint Commission. I still do some side training for the Joint Commission. I'm just not a surveyor because uh, Internally, I thought there was a conflict of interest, if you think about it. You know, no, one, be- in one, one breath, I'm saying, you must do this. And the next breath, I'm saying, geez, that's a stupid requirement. <laughs> right. Right. No. And that, you know, as you, as you explain that, that makes perfect sense because that seems to go. I mean, if you trace your career back to your very early start, which you talked about, you know, as a junior in high school, that would seem to go against the way you've operated. And, and I mean, some things are black and white when you're out there enforcing. But on the other side, you fight back against that. That's been your career. So you can see where it would right. be a conflict for you. Yeah, internally. So, you know, yeah, and, and, then, and then it allowed me to expand my, my teaching and all those things. So that, that loved it. Uh, I, I, although I am technically down a job. So I know based on your background, I don't know if you have any opportunities for me, something. Oh. <laughs> is, is the food truck still operational? Yeah, no, that we have, we have moved on from the, from the food truck business. You know, are, are you too old to be a quarterback for the Patriots? I think I am. I think I am. Although I, I would be more than interested to, to, to contemplate that. But although I say that it depends on uh, if you go back from our previous quarterback age does not matter so my that's for sure my good friend tom so yeah 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 unfortunately uh, but anyway we don't have to talk about the pats next quarterback i am talking to just in case um you didn't catch at the beginning dave 
Dejeuner. Dave is currently Senior Director of Plan Operations, Clinical Engineering Emergency Management, and the Safety Officer at Wentworth Douglas Hospital in Dover, New Hampshire. Just a couple more questions for Dave. It's been a uh, great conversation. Dave, one of the things, um, you know, when you see and when you hear ASHI presidents, they're, they're visible. And, you know, people know what the ASHI president does for the most part. But what's something about that role being the ASHI president that most people wouldn't know about it? You, was there something you learned or something that was surprising to you? Or what's something people wouldn't know about being the ASHI president? Sure. Uh, well, obviously, to your point, they all think, well, you know, handshaker, great opportunity. <laughs> I love best, 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 uh, one of the highlights of my career. I'll be very honest with you. I, I loved it. I would, uh, uh, I would do it again. It's kind of like an un- unofficial, uh, St- you, don't, you don't do it more than once, but anyways, but, but that being said, uh, uh, so, so the, the, the unknown, you could be the, could be the Teddy Roosevelt of the, Ashy yeah, world. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it has happened there. There's been other presidents who have done it again, but it's kind of like a gentleman's general or person's agreement, however you want to say sure. it. But the takeaway is this. So I learned very quickly, something that was very surprising to me. And I, I know a lot of people, and this is an eye opener for many. So Ashy is part of the American hospital association. Mm-hmm. And the American Hospital Association is a much larger uh, corporation, I'll call it. So what I learned very quickly is ASHI, like the departments in our own hospitals, are departments. And there's a level of accountability up through the corporation. So what that means is as the president of ASHI, you you would perceive you have uh, the almighty decision rights and rules. Uh, uh, granted, you have a significant amount of influence, but at the end of the day, you are a department of a bigger organization for mm-hmm. AHA. Yep. So the very things we've been talking about, about uh, financial performance, accountability, all of the things that quite honestly – fit perfectly into my choose your own destiny uh, vision here uh, became very obvious there. So the, the decisions that you think as the president of the American Society of Healthcare Engineers that you think you're going to be able to make are not solely your decisions. So envision, envision as the president, you're sitting at the board table and you're convincing the board of the American Hospital Association on what you should and shouldn't do. It's absolutely no different than what many of us do on a daily basis in our own facilities. Uh, and, and so the, 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 the takeaway is, is that it's a department within a much larger corporation, and that department has rules, expectations, outputs, and those types of things. So, so that's the takeaway. And that, that, was, that became very obvious very soon. And it was extremely surprising to me. Now, with that being said, that doesn't diminish my experience, nor does it, um, um, uh, I, I don't want to uh, discourage anyone from going forward with their ambitions if that's what they want to do. But it tied perfectly into my passion for debate and my ta- my passion for making a case. You know, I shared with you, I presented to my leader years ago, rather than do this, let's do something different. Well, that's a perfect forum for that. You know, present your vision as as the leader in that case of the American Society of Healthcare Engineers to the corporate uh, to to move it forward. So that's that's a that was a that was a something that I think the average person they think of Ashi and the president of Ashi and the uh, the executive director of Ashi having sole decision rights. Uh, uh, it really isn't. In in the world today, everyone has a boss to a certain yeah. degree. No matter right. what, yep, and that stands true. That stands true uh, with uh, with Ashy. I mean it in a positive way. I hope it's not coming across as a negative. No, uh, without without no, the American not. Hospital Association background uh, and behind you, it would be very challenging. So that that's a significant uh, was was an eye opener for me. And, and, right, and and, yeah. and we all operate like you. I mean, the, really, the, a lot of the flavor of the conversation. We all operate within a cons constraining environment. So how do you work within that to advocate for what you need and for the profession at large? And that is, that's what the question was. What, what was eye-opening to you? That's a perfect example. Yep. I enjoyed it. Love it. Would do it again if I had the opportunity. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that's the, you know, that's the best 
endorsement for the you know for the uh, value of the role. Last question, Dave, um, and I appreciate I appreciate your time. Um, you've talked about uh, you know your passion for the FM profession. You've talked about you know advocacy, being an advocate. You've talked about developing your business sense. You've talked about how this whole career has has shifted you know to now what do you see as you look at the future of fm what do you foresee for the future and how would you know if, if somebody's thinking about their career and and where they want to be what would you tell them for the future of fm from your eyes uh yeah so uh background in my opinion you know I, and i would be looking for you to disagree with this because obviously this is your wheelhouse uh, i think i think many organizations are at least at the higher level uh from a fm perspective are looking for uh business business type folks people uh so the day the day of the best widget maker in my opinion are gone if you're banking on that uh, i think that your time in that world is going to is going to is going to dry up eventually. I think what we really need in our industry as a facility manager, and when we say facility manager, uh, I'm not going to get in the, the, the debate of um, of where in the structure you fit. You know, so my <laughs> it's not always about titles, guys. It's in my yeah. world. In my world, you know, I'm a senior director, which is equivalent to an AVP. You know what I mean? So we all have different titles within our world. But the bottom line is this: I spend a good portion of my uh, my day, like many of my colleagues, running a business. That business is uh, the healthcare facility business at my uh, my 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 hospital, and more importantly, at the system level. You know, we are part of the MGB, used to be Partners Mass General Brigham system. Mm-hmm. The expectations at that level are much greater. So, where do I think it's going? I think the facility manager uh, who progressed up through uh, as the best widget maker is going away if it hasn't already gone away. And, you know, I'd be interested in your perspective based on what you, what you do so well is organizations are looking for people that have the ability to, to lead and, and lead from a business perspective. And I shared with you a kind of a statement I made earlier that the way you lead is you get followers and you get followers who can be, who believe in you and believe in the path in which you're trying to take them. Now, that sounds kind of like, you know, it's not like we're going to war and everyone has to follow me. But the reality is, is that you have to learn, you have to earn the respect uh, of, of the people that you work with. And that, quite honestly, most people in healthcare are, it's, we're finally starting to say healthcare is a business. There are healthcare organizations going out of a business, no different than every other private sector has been dealing with it for decades. We're seeing it more and more. So we've got to treat it as a business and we've got to manage it as a business and we've got to function as a business. And it becomes less important for, uh, uh, at least in people in our facility manager role, how often you change the filters in the air handlers. That type of discussion has to take place at your technician level, yeah. and we've got to, we've got to shift the role of the uh, the facility manager to an elevated role. So if you mm-hmm. think about that, that's what we've been talking about all along. What what yeah. we've wanted all these t- all these years is we want uh, we want a facilities vice president. Well, you can want it, but if you're not thinking in the same way from a business perspective then you're not going to get it. So my short answer, if, 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 if that ever exists when you ask me a question, i.e. a short answer, <laughs> the, um, the, rea- the reality is, is that the focus as a facilities manager needs to be less widget-wise, meaning filter changes, air handler compliance, all that, more strategic business thinking. And then when we do that, we can't do both. We have to have strong uh, leaders below us that can manage those. And that becomes their career path. And if you think about it, that's really my career path in a nutshell. I progressed up through the organization. I, in my opinion, changed my thinking process. I adapted to what made sense at the time. And, you know, we didn't even get to talk about my education, but all my education, all my, uh, that I have at this point was all done nights and weekends. So I was working full time and doing college classes on, on the side, yet one more thing. So, uh, yeah. 
So that's where I see it. That's where I see it going. And then, then you decide to what level of the organization or what level of your career you want to be. Yeah. And that, that gets you, that gets you in the right path. No, you're, I mean, you, you touched on so many good things. I would just say the first thing, you know, relative to titles and we tell people that all the time. I mean, I think, you know, if you maybe 10 years ago, people are fixated on titles, but with, you know, your, your organization is a perfect example of it where, you know, you grow into these systems and there's just been title flattening where AVPs are senior directors, where facility directors become facility managers, where VPs, right. you know, VPs are eliminated. So you, you really do. And we, we work with HR departments, we tell them all the time, you have to look at what they do. Don't look at that title because these Correct. days titles are a dime a dozen and they're washed out. It's really on the responsibility side where that's where you need to, to look into uh, relative to your comment about the skills, you, again, you're, you're right. And I always like to talk to people. I mean, Jack and I will sit around talking about this. You know, what's the what's the um, what's the appropriate technical skill you need versus the appropriate soft skill slash leader sl- leadership communication? Like you said, if the technician is going to need more technical than your VP, but if your goal is VP, you're going to see your skills. You know, your skill allotment. It's going to change as you rise within that organization. What do you think, Dave? Uh, I said it was the last question, but you know, give me a minute on this one. What do you think relative to like a, take a facility director? And I know we just talked about getting rid of titles, but I always like to ask people who are, you know, working in it daily. What do you think at the facility director level, the appropriate balance between soft skill versus technical skill is? Yeah. So I'll be, I'll be very candid with you. I don't know if we necessarily agree on the term soft skill. Uh, so mm-hmm. in my, and, 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 and that's okay. And I don't mean it in a bad way. So soft skills yeah. to me are interaction. I'll call it HR, personal communication skills, those things. I yeah. believe the yep. business aspect, the business, how to run the business, the financials, I look at those as a technical skill. I, I just agree. Think it's a, I, just I agree think it's with a you. Little, okay, perfect. I yeah. just think it's a yes. little different. It's a little different than the technician that we're used to talking about in the facilities world. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, you know, you, people kill this, you know, you have, you have 20, 80% rule, uh, but, uh, the ability to manage your people from an HR perspective, when you reach a direct le- director level becomes less in my opinion, because quite honestly, in most cases you have a structure below you that they're managed, supervisors, mm-hmm. managers, those types of things. However, the ability to communicate and the ability to uh, have a can-do attitude and not come across as negative and you can't do is a skill that you have to have because yeah. I have customers. My customers are every other director, AVP, or CEO in this organization. I've got to be able to articulate and communicate my vision to them. And I cannot be a no person. I cannot say I can't do that because I don't have enough people. I can't do that because we don't have a money. Those words should be forbidden and you should never be able to use them. Because I can tell you, if you are sitting in a meeting with high level executives in the organization and you are coming across as a person who cannot get things done within the constraints that you have, they're going to find somebody who can, in my opinion. Yeah. And we hear so, that all the time. I mean, you know, that the messaging, the no is an automatic turnoff. You've got to find ways to get it done, even if it's not completely what somebody needs. Um, COVID was a perfect example. Yeah. It, it, I mean, so so the short answer is, is I think I think in our role, it will continue to evolve and we're going to have to be more um, more technical in I, I use technical, i.e. business savvy. Uh, there is the soft skills, but I also I also would, would make a, 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 a pitch that the ability to communicate effectively and the ability to communicate respectfully to all levels of the organization and have very candid but respectful conversations and be respected for that and not come across as a negative or a Dave Downer is, is, is a skill as well. Oh, I don't absolutely. know if it's soft or technical, but yeah. So I think, well, no, yeah, and I think that... I think that would be a soft one. And it's interesting because I think the difficulty with that business skill set is really it's it's technical and and it might be a skill set that a lot of folks aren't comfortable with if you've if you've grown technically. And then you've got to be able to take that technical component, that business component, and you've got to complement that with the soft skill, the communication, the ability to influence. So you know, if you think traditionally, those are two skill sets that you haven't always been called on to have, but within the last, what, five years, I don't know how many, five, six, seven yeah. years, 10 years, increasingly, yeah. you need to combine them. 
And and yeah. it's outside of that realm of straight technical air handler, boiler, yeah. um, you know, I, HVAC. So I, I go back in the day when you used to go to your budget session, you say, well, I need a new boiler. And the CFO would say, well, why do you need a new boiler? And you say, because it's old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And I know what he's thinking. He's sitting across the table saying, well, geez, I'm old. Do you need a new CFO? You know, but but you, you follow what I'm saying? I mean, oh, absolutely. Because yeah. it's old is not adequate. You've got to it's have the technical. Answer. It's not yeah. an answer. In fact, it's insulting to them, yeah. in my opinion. So you've got to have the te- technical know-how to, to make a case. Uh, look, we've had failure rates. This is the end of life. All, all of the elements that you've got to put into that package and sell it, no different than selling. We shouldn't just sit around and take the codes. We should advocate them. We've got to be salesmen, just not used car salesmen. All right. Well, Dave Dejeuner. Dave is the Senior Director of Plan Ops up at Wentworth Douglas Hospital in Dover, New Hampshire. I say up in because he's north of me. For some of you, it may be over in. Dave, I thank you for your time uh, this morning. Great conversation. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I loved it. Anytime. Always good to talk with you. Just want to be first next time versus the end. I'll tell you what, though. You are the longest <laughs> podcast, so you've got that. Right, so you, you, go. <laughs> you know, you know about me. I've got, to, I've got to push the envelope, and I always got to have something different. So that's great. That's great. I, I appreciate it. This is Peter Martin, Goslin Martin Associates. Thanks for listening to the High Reliability Podcast, and we'll be back in touch soon. Have a great day.